Hey all you creeps, my name is Elle and this is Murder on the 420 Express. So this is part two of Satanic Panic. So let's do a quick recap of last episode. Um, One, we were talking about how the decrease in participation and membership in the not necessarily Christian churches, but just in organized religion, um, just in religious sectors altogether, mainly in Christian society. But, like, the participation in the membership of um, the church was rapidly decreasing after World War II. Um, there w- I shouldn't say. <clears throat> the participation in the membership of churches was decreasing after World War II. Now, it wasn't a big decrease. No, 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 no. It wasn't a big decrease at all. However, it was big enough to be noticed. So what does that mean exactly? So what that means is they want participation. They want memberships, but they also want to stay relevant. They want to stay relevant. So what ends up happening? There's this religious propaganda that ends up being fed to literally everyone in the mother. Right? to everyone in the mother about staying on a righteous path and the only way to do that is through participation and membership with the church um so therefore that whole spiel of fucking propaganda ends up being thrown at us through movies through trying to connect rock and roll with the devil and all kinds of other shit so if you want more context make sure you go back and listen to that first part right now this is part two this is part two of satanic panic man this is part two okay so let me so we did leave off um i did leave off with telling you guys about the book michelle remembers because that was honestly just kind of like the turning point for satanic panic altogether right so pretty much michelle remembers is a discredited book written by a canadian psychiatrist who later ended up marrying um his patient and that patient is who he wrote a book on Um, Supposedly, she went through satanic ritual abuse while she was growing up, but allegedly, allegedly, but it was all disproven. 
none of it ever happened. There were no mention of her two sisters. It was just done by her mother. And her father went on to an interview and said that none of it, like, he's like, I could prove it. There's none of this actually happened. But the book itself was just, like I said, it was a turning point. It was, oh my God, this could happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time. The satanic church wasn't, the church of Satan wasn't founded until like 1966, I think. Um, These satanic ritual abuses that happened to Michelle happened back in 1955. So it wasn't really a thing for the church of Satan because it didn't fucking exist. Or did it? The world will never know. (laughs) but i digress so let's move on to our first case we're going to talk about the missing person case of james dallas egbert iii which later turned into a suicide a suicide so dallas was a child protege right he was attending the university of michigan at the age of 16 years old Uh, He was very interested in computer science and science fiction and fantasy. Um, And he was even a player of, you guessed, (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons, um, which is that famous role-playing game that is somehow attached to uh, the devil worship. It's attached to devil worship. So on August 15th, 1979, Dallas was reported missing after having had lunch with one of his friends, Karen Coleman. Um, no one was able to find him. <laughs> he, he just kind of like disappeared and they weren't really sure of what, where his like last known whereabouts were. So despite his age, the campus did not notify his parents that he disappeared on August 15th. <laughs> in, in, in fact, his parents weren't even notified of his disappearance until August 20th, five days later. On the same day that they were notified, the family called this private investigator, his name is Mr. William C. Dia, to help locate where Dallas might possibly be. Um... Deer is a celebrated and highly successful private investigator. Um, After speaking with Dallas's parents, um, Deer came to the conclusion that Dallas must have been involved in a D&D game, gone horribly wrong, and this theory would widely be reported to the press. And so a seed had been planted and it would grow and grow and grow. And, and the facts of Dallas, Dallas's role playing were consecrated by the media, partly due to investigative efforts with William Deere. There were other facts to be considered, however, which nowhere near got as much coverage, right? It was widely speculated and reported that Dallas was bisexual or gay. Um, He was also known to be a drug user, using his knowledge of chemistry to 
curate and manufacture drugs. That in and of itself is a real Walter White situation. (laughs) But these facts should have been far more relevant than the fact that he played Dungeons and Dragons. Dallas also suffered from severe depression caused by or exacerbated by the opinion in the opinion of an MSU psychologist, uh, parental pressure, criticism, academic pressure, and the failure of a person's of all persons to realize that although Dallas Egbert was a genius, he was a uh, socially retardant and in some respects should be considered mentally retarded. That is what that psychologist said. That is, I'm just reading verbatim what they said. Um, so in, in my personal opinion, so he was autistic. He was autistic. Okay. So <laughs> moving forward. During the investigation, they uncovered several notable things in his room. Uh, These included a note, a collection of poems suggesting suicide, but a handwriting analysis suggested that it had not been written by Dallas. And a pin board in his room that, I mean, Deere and other investigators would assume had clues that would lead to where Dallas might be. There were multiple theories um, as to what happened to Dallas, but the one that most people, including his parents, found the most plausible was that he was <laughs> he wasn't able to distinguish real life from Dungeons and Dragons. That's that's something that something happened to his character, and in turn, something had happened to him. It's unclear exactly what happened to Dallas, but according to Mr. Deer's book, The Dungeon Master, The Disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III, here is what we know, or here is more specifically what Mr. Deer knows. Dallas had been planning this heist movement, suicide, for quite some time. Okay, he 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 was planning this disappearance for a while. His reasons would change as time passed um, on from like suicide to just running away. Um, Another belief is that his mother was putting too much pressure on him to succeed. And he felt like he had no control over his life. Finally, on August 14th, 1974, He decided to stop thinking about it, and he actually did something. So he wrote what he described as a contingency suicide note, disguising his own handwriting with his left hand. (laughs) He disguised his own handwriting with his left hand. Um, And then he created the pattern of pins on his notice board. He had lunch with Karen Coleman, and then from the basement of... Uh, Case Hall walked into the steam tunnels under the campus and he took with him a blanket, a carton of milk, some cheese and crackers, some marijuana, and he believed to have enough sleeping pills or sleeping tablets to kill himself. So that was just his thing. He was going to munch, smoke, or smoke, munch, take some sleeping pills and just never wake up. 
He smoked his marijuana and considered his life, and he thought about computers, his drug problem, his relationship with his parents, and his sexual out. Six 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 sex sexuality. And for the first time in months, he felt he was thinking clearly. He took the sleeping tablets and with the with the deliberate intent of ending his life. He awoke the following night. He crawled from the tunnels and then over a mile to a friend's house. This was a gay man. He, in his early 20s, um, this man wanted to call for help, but Dallas told him that if he did, he would kill himself. The man cared for him for approximately um, a week until Dallas had recovered. Just as the boy was getting well, he broke loose with the police investigating his disappearance because of either a sexual like an like an actual sexual relationship with dallas or merely the fear that such would be suspected this man didn't feel able or didn't feel like he wanted to contact the authorities this was 1979 so any hint of you know being gay or anything like that was that was taken (laughs) taken farther than it should have we we have moved on from there but if anybody was wondering why he never contacted the police it was because of being suspected of having a sexual relation with dallas keep in mind dallas is 16 years old 16 and this man was in his 20s I can only imagine. I can only imagine. So this man asked his friends to help keep Dallas hidden. Eventually, when the danger of discovering, of being discovered in Lansing became too great, they sent Dallas down to New Orleans. These men then contacted Mr. Deer anonymously. And... They wished him to leave Lansing in order to increase their chances of avoiding detection. They were also attempting to negotiate a way of handing Dallas over to the authorities safely. Over time in New Orleans, Dallas was told to contact Mr. Deer. And so he did and was brought back to Michigan. Unfortunately, even though Dallas was found, his story does not have a happy ending. For a time after his disappearance, his life improved um, greatly, in fact. His relationship with his mother improved, and he re-enrolled at the university, this time Wright State. In early 1980, matters began to revert to type, or would revert back. However, as his problems re-emerged, uh, William Deere remained one of his few friends and the and one that attempted to help him greatly. But on April 14, 1980, Dallas quit school. He wanted to work in a computer store, but instead took a job in one of his father's shops. In late July, he moved into a flat with a 23-year-old acquaintance. Mr. Deer attempted to persuade him to return home, but Dallas insisted that his life with his parents was unbearable. On August 11th of 1980, James Dallas Egbert III shot himself in the head 
in the living room of his apartment. He died at Grandview Hospital on the 16th, just over a year after his disappearance. (sighs) If anything, a lot can happen in a year. A lot can happen in a year from someone going missing because from the fucking sounds of it, he had a lot of downs, but he also had a lot of ups. He seemed like he was doing better, but it just takes one all. I mean, I'm speaking from actual experience and maybe I'm speaking to a specific audience type audience, but like all it takes is one time to just have the thought for it to just happen. It's crazy. And I don't, I, I, I don't know what to say other than, (laughs) I don't know what to say. He, he tried and the, and people around him obviously tried. On to our next case, we're going to be talking about which, um, I'm going to do a bonus episode on as well. So the next case we're going to be talking about, I'm also going to be doing a bonus episode on as well. So I'm not going to go in depth with this case um, because I'm going to save that for later, but I can do an overview just because there's a lot that happens with this case. Um, And like I said, it's a, it's one of those cases that was a really big turning point for satanic panic. We're going to be talking about um, this case is the tragic death of uh, Irvine, Irving, sorry, <clears throat> Irving Lee Poling the second. So Irvine, Irving died by suicide on June 9th, 1982 at the age of 17. In addition to being a devastating tragedy, um, Irving's death became a point of heated controversy. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was to blame for causing the teen's death. But we we all know that Dungeons and Dragons doesn't really have that kind of effect. Um, so this case has an interesting follow-up with Irving's mom, Patricia Poling. Uh, taking a jump on the fact that Dungeons and Dragons was the cause of her son's suicide instead of seeing it for what it was, um, that her son was suffering mentally, I am sure you see the trend that most of these parents are not recognizing that there is something wrong with their children. They remain blinded by their own ignorance. So Irving was described by his classmates as someone who struggled to make friends, even though he was an accomplished student. Due to his participation in the Dungeons and Dragons Club that was held at his school, he had no problems that related to the game at all. But his parents, especially his mother, was adamant that the game was to cause, was the cause of her son's death. Patricia established Bothered by Dungeons and Dragons, a.k.a. Bad, in an effort to bring awareness to satanic rituals that D&D was showcasing when you played the game. Even she went as far as seeing the high school or she went as far as suing the high school principal 
for a million dollars in damages for allowing the Dungeons and Dragons club at their <laughs> at his particular school. Uh, so, but spoiler alert: she lost that fucking lawsuit, and she was still hopeful, though to. S- <clears throat> But she was still hopeful on spreading the message that Satan is coming for you and your children if they decided to play in this game. Sound? You know what's so funny is that sounds an awful lot like Riverdale. You know, uh, Griffins and Gargoyles. The parents didn't want their kids playing Griffins and Gargoyles because it was like some sort of ritual. It <laughs> sounds an awful lot like Riverdale. But she launched a full-scale media campaign. I shit you not. Going as far as getting to be interviewed on 60 Minutes with the co-creator of D&D, Gary Gygax. Patricia went on to publish a book as well called The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan in 1989. A few years after Irving's death... Um, in 1990, Michelle, uh, sorry, in 1990, Michael Stackable, <laughs> Stackable, published the polling report. Do you want me to tell you what the polling, yeah, you want to know what the polling report is. So the polling report is a doc, <laughs> documented numerous errors in Patricia Polling's book, The Devil's Web. And it was pretty much disproving her credibility at this point. In nine, um, and then in 1991, the American Association of Suicidology and the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and the Health and Welfare of Canada, Canada, all concluded that there was no casual link between fantasy gaming. And suicide. <gasps> I'm sorry. That was three. Three major entities in and of themselves did studies and found that fantasy role playing games and suicide have no links to one another. But despite Patricia's best efforts, bad ceased like ceased to exist after she died in 1997 due to lung cancer. This case is wild because, um, when did he pass? He passed in 1982. This is like I told you guys, I wasn't really going to go deep into this case in particular. I was just going to brushly go over it because, I'm going to do a bonus episode on it. And the reason why is because Patricia was dead set on the fact that Dungeons and Dragons was literally the cause of her son's suicide. And the best part, I'm going to leave you with this kind of like a little spoiler. The best part about this entire thing is she was not Christian. She might have converted later on in life, but she was a proud Jewish woman. Isn't that fucking crazy? This is why I said it's not just Christianity. It's not just 
Christian like extremist. Like there are other religions out there that are demonizing uh, Satanism or they're using, I shouldn't say demonizing. That's the wrong word to use, but they're using Satanism as a way to fuel fear in order to get you to come to them. It's, it's so weird. It's so weird. It's weird. But on to our next story. And with this one, this one, I will for sure start off with a content warning, a trigger warning. This one does go into satanic ritual abuse. Um, and also, just child abuse in general like these next two cases fuck it the next three cases because that's what we have left the next three cases are actually just one of the they're so they're gonna be really difficult for me to get through anything that has to do with children in particular is just it's really hard for me because they 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 don't know any better and we take their innocence away from them. We take being a kid away from kids. Why? I don't fucking know. But we do it. So our next story is from our neighbor from the north. Canada. When I said it was widespread, I really mean it was widespread. Canada is one of the countries there's other countries as well too i'm pretty sure there were some european countries um but anyways this case takes place in martinsville saskatchewan canada and this case also involves a daycare in 1992 a mother in martinsville saskatchewan alleged that a local woman who ran a babysitting service and daycare center in her home had sexually abused her child Police began to investigate. Um, police began an investigation, and the allegations began to snowball from there. Like legitimately snowball. There were more than a dozen persons, including five police officers from three different forces ultimately facing up to a hundred charges connected with running a satanic cult called the brotherhood of the ram which allegedly practiced ritualized sexual abuse on numerous children at a devil's church i say that in quotations because according to the kids um this church was a blue shed right outside of town but after police officers were allegedly to be involved, the RCM, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, took over the investigation. I'm assuming this is like Canada's FBI. That's what I'm assuming that is. It's just the Canadian FBI. Five people were tried um, in this case, which were Ron, Linda, and their son, Travis Sterling the owners of the daycare, a young offender, her name is redacted because she was a minor, and a Saskatchewan police officer. They needed up to, um, there were up to three trials 
um, and each trial was hanging on the children's testimony because there was no physical proof. Police did go to the place that they called the Devil's Church, um, which was a blue shed just outside of town, like I said, but found no evidence of anything. They didn't find any evidence that this was a Devil's Church whatsoever. So the first trial... Uh, was the young offender and she was convicted of seven to ten sexual related charges she was the only one who had uh, direct evidence against her and she served two years in prison the second trial was the police officer john popwich Um, who only visited Martinsville once and was accused of sexually assaulting two boys. The RCMP uh, found no evidence and the children failed to identify him. So there was no conviction. The third trial was uh, consisted of Ron, Linda, and their son, Travis, And there was up to 15 children who claimed sexual assault. Uh, Prosecution dropped 15 of the charges, citing lack of evidence from the RCMP. Linda and Ron were cleared. So they were like, yo, you didn't do this, guys. Like, there's no fucking evidence. We can't prove shit. But Travis, Travis was convicted of eight charges. Six of those were sexual assault. The son of the daycare owner who tried, who was tried and found guilty of molestation, but not of sexual abuse on the scale that had been alleged. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Thanks to everyone who listens and supports Murder on the 420 Express. I am happy to announce that we have a new segment of the show. Shh, it's top secret though, so listen up. Join the secret society of the Crypt Creepers and gain exclusive access to our subscriber-only content. Be the first to hear thrilling insights and bonus episodes. Sign up now and unlock the mysteries of the Crypt. Now, back to our program. The interviews of the children were found to be mismanaged from the RCMP. The questions were leading, um, and the children were praised for giving incriminating answers. In 2003, the defendants sued for wrongful prosecution, and Ron and Linda Sterling received uh, $924,000 in 2004. John Pop, uh, Popovich... Popovich, uh, one of the five police officers that was falsely accused, um, he also sued and he received a settlement of $1.3 million for malicious prosecution. Fucking insane. But it's, um, when I say that these trials are riding heavily on children testimony, They're riding heavy on the children's testimony. So much so that when you're asking a child about an event that happened, like a traumatic event that happened, it is, or an event that obviously didn't happen to them at all. When you're asking leading questions, 
they're going to follow. They're going to follow. Um, in this next case that we're going to be talking about, the same thing fucking happened. The people interviewing the children were asking misleading questions, not misleading questions. They were asking leading questions. They were giving praise. They um, were even shaming some of the children who refused to admit anything happened because they're like, this didn't happen to me. They they would bully the children into getting the like pretty much coercing these children into giving these testimonies that obviously didn't fucking happen. So our next story takes place in the year of 1983. Notice how I'm doing this in chronological order. I'm mo- I'm p- smarter, not harder. Okay, it's smarter, not harder. So this next story takes place in 1983. Like I said, a young mother by the name of Judy Johnson had noticed that her two-year-old son had quite the angry rash on his bum. Uh, When she asked her child about, about it, he indicated that Mr. Ray from his preschool had, quote, poked him with something pink, end quote. The man in question was Ray Bucky. He worked at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. Um, Bucky was shortly arrested after the alleged claims that were made by Johnson. During the police investigation, they were unaware of any children, um, of any other children that could have faced the same fate as this two-year-old. So (laughs) what they... (laughs) So they do what they do best. They fuck shit up. Okay? (laughs) They fuck shit up. They inevitably mailed out letters to 200 parents that had their children attend McMartin Preschool. um, Asking parents to question their children. They fucked up, though. Because they named Ray as the perpetrator in these letters. They named Ray. Now, when you send out a letter to possible witnesses and victims, you are, and you know, there's the name of the perpetrator. You're already tainting the investigation, right? Because it's alleged that he did these things. They don't have any evidence that proves that he did these things. They just have allegations, right? That's all that is. And you named your alleged perpetrator in letters that you mailed out to parents and asked them to question their children in relation. It's already tainted. The investigation is already tainted. Most parents are not skilled enough or even equipped with the proper questioning methods used for criminal criminal investigations. And the responses are more than likely going to be corrupt. So after hundreds of parents, right, receive these letters, they take their children to see, uh, to the local LA family therapy center, also known as the children's Institute international. From there, the children were interviewed by social workers. Most of these interviews were video recorded and think the universe that they were okay or thank god that they were 
whichever one floats your boat. Um, on these tapes, they would later discover uh, that the children were asked a majority of leading questions. And like I said, we see this happen in numerous cases because these weren't just the two preschools uh, McMartin and also the one that happened in Martinsville, Saskatchewan. These daycares were not the only ones that were experiencing satanic ritual abuse um, at their daycare facilities. At, they're not the only ones. The only reason why I chose these ones was because they had the most media coverage on them. So these children were asked leading questions um, like do you remember the naked pictures or telling them that other children had already confessed the yucky stories and if the child refused to admit anything they were bullied and called by the uh, and they were called the names by these social workers. Like I said earlier, like these, these kids were literally being uh, like, like abused essentially. Like they were being harassed by these investigators. The children would recall, um, playing naked movie star or the underground tunnels under the preschool where they would see animal sacrifices, um, they would see murders happen in front of them, um, even going as far as them saying that they witnessed someone sacrificing a baby. Like, like these are horrific, horrific, alleged encounters. All this was to scare the children into submission. Um, the CII would start to believe that this was a pornography ring. Uh, through the children's testimonies grew the impending doom of satanic ritual abuse and Satanism across the country. Out of 400 students, 360 children admitted to being abused. Out of the 400 kids that attended McMartin Preschool and Daycare Center, 360 children, present day and already graduated, keep that in mind, 360 kids. That is a vast, overwhelming majority of the kids that claimed SRA. That's massive, massive. So when I say this case swept the nation, I mean it swept the nation, okay? People were putting signs in their yard to show support for the victims. And this is where that slogan comes from. This is where that slogan comes from. Believe the children. The children said that this should happen, so it must have fucking happened. I'm not saying don't believe your children, but that's where this slogan came from. And then there were six people who were alleged to be involved, right? So we have Ray Bucky, you have Peggy McMartin Bucky, 
Ray's mom. You have Peggy and Bucky, Ray's sister. And you have three female teachers. They were charged up to 208 counts of sexual abuse and conspiracy. However, a week later, all charges were dropped against everyone but Ray Bucky and his mom, Peggy McMartin Bucky. Why? Why, you may ask? Because there was no evidence. There was no evidence. No physical evidence or, quite frankly, not enough evidence to back up the claims that these children were making. Right? Just to put the cherry on top of the cake, the mother who started all of these alleged claims, Judy Johnson, remember her? You better fucking remember her. So Judy Johnson, she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia back in 1985 and would die a year later in 1986 from alcohol-related liver disease. I'm not saying she was crazy because apparently she was a nurse as well, too. But (laughs) shit is getting wild. W-I-L-D, dude. It's getting wild. So starting April of 1987, the trial for Bucky and his mother would last up till like 1990. And the jury was deadlocked for 12 molestation charges and one count of conspiracy for Bucky. And as far as his mother is concerned, um, she was found not guilty on 52 counts and a deadlocked jury for a count of conspiracy. Bucky would appeal this ruling and immediately after, um, Bucky would appeal this this ruling like immediately after but that would later lead to another deadlocked jury where the judge said he would not be tried again Eh. so even if there was any sort of abuse happening at this preschool it wasn't being fucking (laughs) if there was any abuse happening at this preschool there was no evidence all of these claims were alleged and it became such a media frenzied type of case and trial and the media just took it away and was just like it's a it's satan it is a satanic ritual that's happening to these kids it's just oh It really grinds my gears. It really fucking grinds my gears. But moving to our last case. This one should be very familiar to all of you true crime junkies out there. So um, our last case takes place in 1993 where three eight-year-old boys were found in a water-filled ditch in Robin Hood Hills subdivision of West Memphis, Arkansas. For this case, I will not be going into details as there is a lot of details. And maybe in the future, I will do an episode dedicated to this case. But for now, I'm just trying to keep it all satanic panic. 
Um, so these three eight-year-old boys were found beaten, naked, and hogtied. It, there was little evidence at the scene, and if there was any evidence, it was essentially just all swept clean. Uh, police weren't able to find much evidence, even if there was some. When the media got a hold of this story, um, being in Bible Belt, USA, stories of satanic rituals and cult-like activities were brewing up a rampage and hysteria throughout the town um, with much pressure on them to solve this heinous triple homicide um, of these three small boys. Uh, Police were left with trying to make three young men the target. Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse McKelly, Miss Kelly Jr. I hope I said that right. Miss Kelly. <clears throat> Jerry Driver was a juvenile probation officer for Credent County who believed that there was a satanic cult in the area. And who did he think was running that bitch? Of course, Damian motherfucking Eccles. Much of that belief was a result of his dealings with Damien Eccles. Damien Eccles was placed um, under the supervision of Jerry Driver because he got arrested for burglary and sexual misconduct. The uh, the more that Driver uh, interacted with Eccles, the more convinced he became that Eccles was involved in a satanic cult. Eccles denied any connection with Satanism, but did admit to believing and practicing magic. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Ain't nothing wrong with that. But of course, during this time, and especially in Bible Belt USA, of course they're going to say that it's Satan. Of course they are. Driver shared his suspicions with the West Memphis police. Jason Baldwin was friends with Eccles, both of them being social outcasts. Baldwin did well in school and did not join in Eccles experimentations with magic. Despite their many uh, differences, they spent a great deal of time together. The third and final suspect, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., had a little connection to or had little connection to either Eccles or Baldwin. However, he babysat for Vicki uh, Hutchinson a woman who volunteered to help the police uh, investigate them. Uh, Hutchison began to ask Miss Kelly questions about the case, and he agreed to introduce her to Eccles, um, obviously being the well-known suspect at this point. Hutchison told police that she persuaded Eccles to take her to a witch's gathering and that Miss Kelly went with them. As a result, Miss Kelly was taken to the police station for several hours of questioning, of which just over 30 minutes was or was recorded, right? And at the end of the questioning, Miss Kelly confessed implicitly <laughs> or like implicating himself, right? Um, Eccles and Baldwin. Miss Kelly's confession, however, uh, was inconsistent with details of the crime of which the police were already aware. So if if you don't, that's okay. 
But if you do, if you haven't heard it, go listen to the four-part series of the West Memphis Three from Morbid. They play parts of this interview with Miss Kelly and the police. And every single time they ask him leading questions for one, for two, every single time he says, then I left, then I left pretty much saying I wasn't there. They kept putting him back at the scene with leading statements and leading questions. And just so that it's known, even in this episode itself, Miss Kelly was not the brightest. In fact, I'm pretty sure he scored like he scored a really low IQ. And so it's my belief, my belief that the police really took that to their advantage in getting Miss Kelly to pretty much confess. So while confessing, Miss Kelly at times contradicted his own story. Um in spite of the potential problems with Miss Kelly's confession, the police arrested him, Eccles and Baldwin, on June 3rd, 1993. Soon after Miss Kelly made this confession, he recanted his statement saying that police behavior was erratic and just wanted to cooperate without realizing the implications of his statement. From there, Miss Kelly's trial would be separated from Baldwin and Eccles in hopes that he would testify against them, right? Miss Kelly and Baldwin would get life in prison, but Eccles would get the death penalty. Now, before we go any fucking further, there were two suspects at the time, but any leads were not followed or taken seriously from the police. Chris Morgan and Brian Holland are those suspects. They left town and hit the road for Oceanside, California, right after the murders happened. They left town and hit the road, man. They were just like fucking deuce. But they were arrested in Oceanside and given polygraph tests and asked and they were asked questions about the murders. And guess what? The lie detector test determined that that was a lie. Any any questions that were led or leading towards the murder they were found dishonest so what happened the oceanside police they called up west memphis police and they were like hey we got these people they're fucking suspicious they are suspicious west memphis police didn't really do anything they're like oh that sounds cool that's great but oceanside decided to send over samples of urine and blood to the West Memphis Police Department. And what did they do? What did these moments? They did nothing. They did nothing. They kept their narrative on these three teen boys because it sounded better and they were already trying to build a case around them. In fact, most of the evidence brought to trial was circumstantial. There was an expert, quotations, expert 
in the occult that said the defendant's music collection and clothing was an indicator of satanic cult-like activity. I'm going to let you sit on that for a second. Their clothing and their taste in music was a direct indicator of cult-like activity. The defense also failed, okay, to present more substantial evidence regarding how the police handled the investigation. After the trial was over, the sentences were given, numerous appeals were sent in claiming new evidence, challenging rulings against inclusion evidence, and witness a witness, Hutchison, admitted perjury. She admitted perjury saying that the police told her what to say. And then the foreman of that jury was discussing the details of the case to his lawyer. (laughs) You gotta love our legal system sometimes. I'm fucking bad. Bro, like what? I'm baffled at the mishandling of this entire case in 1996 paradise lost the child murders of robin hood hills was released in hopes that it would encourage the public interest in the fate of the three there was even an arkansas reporter who wrote devil's knot the true story of the West Memphis Three, and that came out in 2002. Celebrities such as Eddie Vader, Johnny Depp, and Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks had visited Eccles and offered support in in their innocence. Like they were like, "Nah, dude, they're innocent." In 2010, uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court ordered a hearing to analyze new evidence to potentially exonerate the three it came to a head when the alford 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 plea was offered which means that all three had to plead guilty stating on the record that they're stating on the record their innocence right um but only pleading guilty for their best interest In 2011, Judge Laser approved the Alford plea, 18 years behind bars, and the three were released. The case still remains unsolved to this day. However, I am hearing that uh, I think Eccles is the one that is adamant on trying to find who actually did this to to the boys. If I read that correctly in one of the articles I was reading. But do you see what mass hysteria gets us? Like, even in my, even in the last episode when I was talking to you guys about the fucking UFOs. Like, there's so much shit going on right now in our country that don't, I don't see how mass hysteria wouldn't fucking hit at some point or another right we've got ufos being shot down we have toxic hazardous waste that's being transported on trains that are getting supposedly derailed 
and the potential of like World War Three. Fuck, there's a lot of shit fucking happening right now, and it's no wonder how mass hysteria hasn't already hit us, or maybe it has, and it's just a lot calmer now. It's not just a slap in the fucking face. But either way, with these cases, they are truly horrific. And if there is any slight chance of truth to any of these cases, obviously not including Egbert or Pulling, they were suicides. But like with the daycares and with the West Memphis Three, like if there's any slight truth to any sort of satanic ritual abuse the media most certainly took it and fucking ran with it gave them an inch they took a motherfucking mile in that direction (laughs) but that wraps up our episodes for satanic panic If you liked this episode, please hit that like button. Don't forget to share. And of course, hit that subscribe button, hit that follow button so that you can get more episodes and cases like this. So thank you for tuning in to Murder on the 420 Express. I hope you enjoyed (laughs) this episode and found it informative and entertaining. Uh, we, If you have any feedback, suggestions for future topics, or want to leave us a review, please don't hesitate to reach out and email us at murder420podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on TikTok and Instagram at murderonthe420official and stay up to date with new episodes and other updates as well. I'm your host, Elle, leaving you with a higher train of thought.